Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Geddes Ulinskis, principal of Geddes Ulinskis Architects. GUA's portfolio features buildings set in both verdant and urban landscapes. They develop sleek Contemporary envelopes to highlight outward views of water, land, and sky, and interior vistas showcasing art, furnishings, and objects, focusing on innovative materials and details. They lead and collaborate with premier contractors, construction managers, and design consultants. For more information, feel free to visit www.ularch.com. That's ularch.com. Hello, Giddis. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architects Radio Show today. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. We're, we're happy. What are some early inspirations, if you will, that you can recall that uh, where you are now and uh, if you can recall back as far as you can when you, uh, when you knew, hey, this is for me? Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up in La Jolla, California, and, you know, it's a beach town. Excellent. But... Remarkably, there was a piece of architecture that was built there, which was called the Salk Institute. Uh-huh. And it was built by yeah. Louis Kahn, or designed by Louis Kahn. And, you know, I was like any other high school kid growing up in La Jolla. I liked skateboarding, I liked surfing. and But I would look up on the hill, and there was this exquisite building there. And for some reason, it spoke to me. And I didn't know it was significant. I didn't know it meant anything. And somehow I, I found my way into architecture, and I joke that I stood in the wrong line, but there's some truth to that. No, really. Go into it. That's great. You <laughs> okay. stood well, in the wrong line. Well, the school that I went to, Pratt Institute mm-hmm. in New York, they had a method of trying to get elite students. And what they would do was they would hold a scholarship competition where they literally had a competition where they would send out a program and students from all over the country would enter submissions to try and win this scholarship. It was like a Rome Prize or something like that, but it was a mm-hmm. full scholarship to attend architecture school. And at the time when I was in high school, I liked drawing a lot, so I did a lot of you know illustrations, and I was pretty sure I was going to be a commercial artist or illustrator. And so I was going to go for the art scholarship to Pratt. I was talking about it with my art teacher, and we made our plans and everything. We're going to send in slides, all that mm-hmm. stuff. And we missed the deadline. Somehow we spaced out, and it was, <laughs> no it was, the, the opportunity the was gone. <laughs> but we flipped it over, and on the back was architecture. And we still had time for the architecture submission. And my art teacher said, well, I want to do that. And I said, well, I don't know anything about architecture. And he said, just try it. And so I did an entry for it, and he said, you know, just send this in. And if you win a scholarship, you can always transfer to art. So for some reason, they chose my entry as the first place prize winner, and I was given a full scholarship to attend Pratt, and I never switched over into architecture. So I wound up going to architecture school, and I remember in my freshman year of architectural history, there was the Salk Institute. No way. And in fact, my professor of art history, John LaBelle, wrote a book about Louis Kahn, and the Salk Institute was on the cover of this book. And this was a building that I had grown up with as a kid and never even knew that, you know, it was this magnificent piece of poetry that it was. And yeah. so, anyway, early on, there were these 
landmarks that were speaking to me. And I didn't know it would ultimately be such a strong part of my formative, you know, creative self. But I was really blessed to grow up in a place like that, that had some really, you know, beautiful examples of architecture, like Balboa Park had gorgeous Julia Morgan architecture in it. Mm -hmm. There was some very early Irving Gill architecture in San Diego, where Irving Gill was like, you know, one of the fathers of early modernism in, in the West Coast. So, and... I didn't know the names. I didn't know, you know, anything about art or architecture history. But I just always recall there were these beings, you know, sort of in the background. Beings. You yeah. call them beings. They were yeah, beings. Yeah. They yeah. had souls. Yeah. And they were there always in the background as, as I was growing up. So Excellent. Excellent. A number of things really stand out. Get us a magnificent piece of poetry. I like that. Is that something that kind of has a theme in you when you look at a project? Did you are you looking to create that, or what is what's kind of your mindset or your your soul set? I just made that up. I don't even know if there's a word, but your soul set when someone approaches you with a potential project. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it, it it all comes from the fact that there was this thing that was called modernism that was invented, and when modernism came around, there was this whole romance with. The machine, right? I mean, there were all those analogies that homes were a machine for living, schools were a machine for learning, and you, you could just keep going. And at some point, though, we fell out of love with the machine, and we entered the information age. And now, like, we use terms like smart home, and we use terms like environments that learn, and all this kind of stuff. But the machine for living, the smart home, all that kind of thing are still empty to us, Ultimately, it's not satisfying. It, it doesn't speak to us. And so ultimately, as an architect, my job is to find the poetry and the meaning behind all this technology and all these resources that we surround ourselves with. Yeah. How do you do that? Is, how do you, is there a process that you go through or is it uh, on a piece-by-piece, uh, piece, project-by-project basis? Well, it comes from understanding the client, the end user, okay. first. You have to understand who they are, where they've lived, sort of the things that they've been connected to. Because, again, all this technology and all this expertise doesn't amount to anything unless it connects to you. I mean, I, I often think that movies are a great example of okay. that. You know, you, you think about all the visual technology we have these days to create incredible effects, yet you will go to a big-budget movie and you'll be sitting in a theater looking around at everybody else with the same question. Why was this thing made, right? I mean, there's, there's no story there. It doesn't connect. It doesn't mean anything. And unfortunately, architecture can be that same way. I mean, you can have all the technological and all the building expertise and, you know, science and chemistry and engineering working for you. And it doesn't connect with you. It doesn't say anything. So the first thing is to understand what people's experience are, what connects with them. And a great way, a shortcut for that is actually look at the art that they've collected. Okay. Look at the pieces of like visual expression that they have surrounded themselves with. And that begins your first couple of clues. Look at where they've lived. I mean, do you have clients that have spent a lot of time in the Far East? Have, have they spent a lot of time in the Southwest? And you begin to build the landscape of sort of the history of their experience and the history of the environments that they've lived in. And then you begin to weave these things together. Because ultimately, you know, I was telling somebody the other day that the most dreadful thing that can happen to me as an architect is to be asked to build a spec home. <laughs> oh, really? So they get to be asked to build a spec home. Exactly. Is that like your potential nightmare? Yes. It is. Because it's what, a real one. what you're being asked to do okay. is you're being asked to, to create a product that has the broadest appeal to the largest section of the consumer market possible. And as an architect, that's a dreadful thing to have to do because basically <laughs> there's no soul in it, right? Yeah. I mean, my ideal client is somebody who has lived a rich life, has experienced different cultures, has experienced art that has really, you know, spoken to them and connected to them. And they've created a life where they've collected these things and made them part of their life. And when we're done, 
that place that we've all worked two, three years on designing and building has a soul. There's a soul that inhabits that place. You walk in and you sense who they are. You know it. It's not an empty wrapped package that somebody is trying to put on market and sell. Yeah. I noticed you you use the word their soul a lot. You've got to be very in tune yourself in order to see their self. So how do you keep yourself in tune with uh, capturing the essence of virtually everything? Well, I mean, that I think part of it is, you know, like any good artist, you have to have an appreciation for sort of what artists are doing across different disciplines. I mean, as an architect, I'm always interested to see what sculptors are doing and mm, what they're interested okay. in, what they're exploring. I'm always interested to see what video artists are, you know, exploring and what subjects are they tackling and and what part of our sort of cultural conscious are, are they addressing. Film, music, it's, you have to sort of keep yourself an educated generalist in a way. Educated generalist? Yes. Okay. <laughs> because, okay. I mean, you know, if I wanted to be a specialist as an architect, I would be doing like anesthesia suites <laughs> or, you know, some sort of medical specialty where it's sort of highly specialized and there's, you know, a specific function and that's what I do. I'm not that kind of specialist. What I have to do is I have to be really a sensitive human being that is sort of open to what is happening and and what the feeling is sort of across the spectrum in terms of all the arts and all the visual means of expression and even like dance and music and all that kind of stuff. Because again, that goes back to that element that people want something that speaks to them and connects to them. And that's what makes all this effort worthwhile. Yeah. You've got to be obviously very in tune. So how important is the relationship with your the people or your clients even next to design? Is there a percentage you've ever quantified that uh, 70% is design, 30% is with the people? Or is, is the relationship with your clients as vital, if not more so, than the actual design drawing and the actual building process? Oh, well, the, the relationship with the client is, it's almost everything. Really? That and, high? Oh, yeah. Everything? I mean, <laughs> wow. Whoa. Well, wow. seriously, because, okay. you know, there's this saying that behind every great project, there's a great client, and it is absolutely true. And I, you know, yeah, I've got to do a lot of pretty things and a lot of really innovative things and a lot of really sort of timeless things. And that has really all come from a collaboration. I mean, as, as an architect, I get to say, oh, look what I did. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, it's always a collaboration and it's always a collaboration with a great client. And here's the thing. That, well, there, there's two things. There's the site and there's the client. And what your job as the architect and the best thing you can do for yourself is to understand both and to collaborate with both. Because obviously, if you fight with your site, okay, <laughs> you're not going to come up with a good result. You know, if you fight with the topography or if you fight with protected tree species or whatever it is <laughs> yeah. that you've got to work with, you're just going to wind up with something that is a compromise of a vision that you were not open enough to understand was not even the right way to go. And it's the same thing with the client. If you don't understand your client and if you fight with the client and you're trying to impose sort of your own preconceived notion as to who you are as a designer and why you think they came to you and what you want to give them, then you've closed yourselves to the possibility of what can truly happen. And when you understand who you're working with and you understand the unique resources that that person who's trusting you brings to the process, that is when you can come up with something truly spectacular. Wow. So you really are, in essence, it sounds like a spiritual uh, experience in almost every case. Am, am I reaching a bit saying that? Or is there something to it? Because you, you mentioned soul. You're capturing the, the, the essence of the, your clients, the sight, everything. All these senses have to be made aware of. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and that goes back to this comment I made earlier about being a generalist in that you have to be attuned. In my practice as a residential architect, you have to be attuned to all the the design considerations, and people are a huge part of that, okay? There's, as I mentioned, there's the site, there's available building technology, there's the 
way the contractors work and what their expertise is. And then ultimately, it's people. You're working with people. You have to be attuned to people, and you have to, you know, be open to what is unique about them and what this experience can be. Excellent. This is going to be a terrific show. I can tell. You're listening to the Modern Architect KZSU Stanford ninety point one FM. Silicon Valley at home. You're invited to join Silicon Valley at home for Affordable Housing Week 2018, May 11th through the 18th. Will be filled with seminars, workshops, and panel discussions designed to raise awareness, educate, and encourage people to engage in working together to make Santa Clara County a more affordable place to live for all. The week will conclude with a panel discussion and luncheon on Friday, May 18th at 11 a.m. in Sunnyvale. For more info and tickets to the luncheon, please visit siliconvalleyathome.org/backslash/events and search for Affordable Housing Week 2018. We're talking today with Geddes Ulinskis, principal of Geddes Ulinskis, architects of San Francisco, California. For more information, you can visit www.ularch.com. That's U L A R C H. Geddes, I noticed um, on your website and a lot of your projects, there's a, a timelessness to it. That's just my take for it. Is that by design or it's uh, the client's looking for something that uh, 100 years from now or, long, or, or even longer, you can go back and still be, uh, it can still speak to you? Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's true. Thank you. So, yeah, timelessness. It's definitely high on the list of what clients come to us for because a lot of the projects that we do are pretty large scale. You know, the budgets the, that we work on, it's a lot. And so when somebody <laughs> is investing that much, you know, they don't want to have to change around a lot of stuff in four or five years. It, it's kind of like, oh, God, did we really do that? And I think actually that's, again, you know, we had this conversation earlier about technology and how it moves so quickly. Mm-hmm. And architecture is sort of the vessel in which all this technology lives, that that vessel has sort of a stability to it. Because the technology itself, you know, all this stuff like for home automation and, and AV and all that, like two or three years, it's all obsolete. It all gets torn yeah. out again. And so to have for us to be able to create something of lasting value that our clients have their memories in and have the memories of raising their children and, and having the memories of their families coming together in this place. And this place having sort of this sort of cherished identity because there's so much disposable in our culture. You know, I in the building where I work, there's a firm called Pocket Gems that creates mobile games. And they have all these programmers, they're, you know, coders, they're up all night drinking Mountain Dew, whatever. And they'll put out a game and it'll make bank for, you know, like two or three months, right? They'll make a killing on this game. But in two or three months after that, it's old and it's done and nobody plays it anymore and it's gone. And like I said, there, we live in an ocean of just disposable things that we use and we discard. And so for me as an architect... To be involved in a pursuit where we create permanence, where we create things that are lasting and cherished, okay, that's a huge honor, first of all, for me. And secondly, that to me is my obligation, is to create something that, you know, is lasting and is timeless. Yeah, so it is, it really, we're going to go back from when uh, we started early inspiration. It is a calling. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. It has to be because it, I have to tell you, you know, it's a hard gig. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you start out at the bottom and you are just used and abused and you fight your way through the ranks. And then if you're lucky enough to get to the point where you get to hang your shingle out, then your next challenge is, okay, who's going to believe in me? And so that's why architects practice into their 70s and 80s because yeah. it only starts to get good, like, you know, when, when you're an old man. So. Yeah. You know, it sounds like you're, I hate to say this, but you're, but you're kind of like hitting your stride now. I mean, you were usually, you think hitting your stride like an athlete mm-hmm. is when they're 21, 22 years mm-hmm. old. Mm-hmm. But as an architect, you hit it, you know, in your 
40s, 50s, 60s, and it just kind of, as you said, gets better as you get older. Yeah, I agree. Okay. And, you know, there's a very Zen thing about architecture where— Word. I love it. Zen. You know, you see those— Old kung fu episodes where it's like <laughs> We're going the, there. the young okay, kid, yeah, okay. he just he just wants to skip all the steps and become like a badass. Yeah, okay. and and the old master has him sitting there like ladling out you know water from a well or something, and it's going <laughs> to yeah, take I years remember, to yeah. do. And it's like, no, you have to be patient. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the way the architecture is. And when you're young, you know, you want to get famous and and you want to try out all these ideas and you stuff them all into your first big commission and it's a disaster. Oh, I mean, no. it's, it's like, oh, why did you do that? <laughs> and it only, it well, number one, restraint is an incredible lesson that takes so long to learn. Because again, you know, you go through this profession where you have to be in the background, you have to be listening to other people for so long. You just, you can't wait to say your thing. And when you get that chance, you know, tendency to jump out there and and try and say too much. So as you get through your trajectory as an architect and you begin to become more patient, that actually allows you, number one, to listen more. You begin to sort of tune yourself in a little bit more outside yourself. And secondly, it brings a level of restraint that, to me, restraint is incredibly important. You know, I, I once took a literature class where the professor was saying that in, in literature, there have been great putter-inners and great lever-outers. <laughs> and in, in architecture, like I'll go back to Louis Kahn. He was a fantastic lever-outer. And that, you, when you walk into spaces, it just it fills you with so, so much awe. Yeah. How do you unlearn that? What you're talking about, because most people, as you said, when you're younger, you want to throw everything mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. And then that restraint, which is, uh, I've not heard that word. I would think of it as patience. Mm-hmm. How would someone unlearn that sort of overexcitement or overextended too many add-ons? Right, right. It's, it's a long process. And, you know, we live in a time right now where architecture is, it's an incredibly eclectic time. I mean, you know, there are firms out there doing French provincial mansions. There are firms out there doing spaceships and everything in between. And there's no playbook, right? There's no manual, I think is wonderful. And so it's up to you to be your own editor. Like, you know, architects, I wish I had an editor. (laughs) Like, I wish I had somebody I could send something to and they could like redline it and say, what are you thinking? But no, you have to be your own editor. And self-editing is, you know, for writers, it's an incredibly important skill and more so now for architects. And so, yes, the unlearning these tendencies is really important. And, and I could probably say it's the same for all the arts. Yeah. Came up with this. There's so many great lines here. You're definitely a, a magnificent piece of poetry. Listen to this, Gaddis. Okay. You've got a, an ocean of disposable things in our world today. You've got, uh, uh, you want to create permanence of lasting value and restraint. It's one of the key attributes, which I don't think you can find that anywhere (laughs) to say, what are the key attributes to sustained, fulfilling success and uh, fulfillment? Restraint. If you just drop that word, it'd be like, what? Right? Yeah, Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because, you know, restraint is not a value which is placed tremendously high in our society. You know, hardly. If you look at a lot of our entertainment, there's not a lot of restraint there. (laughs) It's all about who can be over the top. And again, yeah, that's also a message that's kind of being screamed at us in our daily lives is like, who can be so over the top that, you know, it it blows everybody's mind. So to kind of pull yourself away from that and get yourself in a place that's quiet enough that, you know, you can listen to sort of another message. I think that's something that's very valuable and very important. Yeah. Yes, we're going to have to, if we ever come up with a Zen show, you've got to be on it. That's for, <laughs> that's for sure. Because this is, uh, it is Zen-like with this. I don't know, recall who stated this, but I remember it verbatim as, the world belongs to the patient. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, touch on that. You know, what's your thoughts on that? You know, this, this is a, an improv question, but, you know, the world belongs to those who are patient. Well, okay, there's a lot of truth to that in terms of my world because, number one, I, I practice in San Francisco where 
particularly in some of the neighborhoods we work, there is an exceedingly high level of political maneuvering that has to be done in order to get anything built. Because, you know, people, they get used to things, they feel like it's their neighborhood, and they don't like people coming along and changing things. So, And I see a lot of people come in who think that, oh, yeah, we buy this thing and we'll just do this. And this isn't like someplace in Houston. I mean, this, <laughs> this is San Francisco. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, it's a very long process. And so just from an entitlement point of view, it takes a lot of patience. And in a way, that's good because that I work for people who are it makes them committed. OK, it, they're not here to get some quick gratification to significantly change a high profile property in the city of San Francisco is a long and grueling process. And it's not one that you would do necessarily for quick commercial gain. So luckily, a lot of the clients I work for, this is something that just you go through that whole process, it's going to have meaning to you. (laughs) I mean, you get grilled by the system and you finally come out and we've achieved this thing and it's beautiful. And all of a sudden, like, you couldn't imagine the world without it. So in, 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 in that degree, you know, the patience is an important part of it. And then the other thing is in terms of waiting for something to form like there will be certain parts of a project where we feel like a lot of other things have to fall into place and then you know that's right and i guess it's sort of a sequence thing you know and for instance as a funny example i was working on a project in hawaii once with the great late mexican architect ricardo lagareta yeah and i remember once the clients were kind of getting anxious about the color of their house because Ricardo's really known for his color, right? And he did a lot of these Louis Barragon-esque homes that had these like vibrant colors and everything. And so this was a big mystery to the clients and they were waiting. And I remember Ricardo would come out to the job site when the project was being built and the clients would ask him, what color is it going to be, Ricardo? And he said, you know, it will come. The color will come. (laughs) And eventually it did. But... I mean, it was his way of saying that for right then, the form was the most important thing. And at some point, the form will inform the color. And that there's some things as an artist, like, you know, you can't explain it. You have a sense for, like, what step is the next step? And again, that's part of that whole journey. And that's part of, you know, going through this process enough and knowing your own process as an artist. So, Terrific. Look forward to coming back on this. You're listening to The Modern Architect on KZSU 90.1 FM. And a message from Montalvo Soundwork. Montalvo's Art Center presents a newly commissioned soundwork by composer Howard Hirsch that can be heard on smartphone earbuds while hiking at Montalvo. Four Bridges combines instrumental music, the voices and laughter of a children's choir, field recordings, and readings of poetry and prose as hikers are led on a trail through Redwood Canyons and into the oak-lined meadows of Montalvo. Four Bridges will launch on April 29th at Montalvo in Saratoga. For more information, visit montalvoarts.org. We're talking today with Geddes Ulinskis, principal of Geddes Ulinskis, architects in San Francisco, California. For more information, please feel free to visit www.ulark.com. That's www.ularch.com. Get us working with great architects. How have they influenced where you are now? If you can, that's a general question, but uh, however you, you feel comfortable answering, I think our audience would love to hear how, what, you know, what influences, in addition to your own influences, who's helped influence you? Oh, sure. I mean, in my career, um, I've been extremely fortunate in that um, when I came to San Francisco, I worked at a firm that collaborated with some really notable, you know, world-renowned architects. I had mentioned Ricardo Legareta, who I got to work on a number of homes with. There was also the Japanese architect Fumiko Maki, and Maki did the Center for the Arts in San Francisco. And so San Francisco has a tradition of really collecting a lot of 
beautiful architecture from around the world, you know, within the city. I mean, there's the the MoMA is a great example. Mm-hmm. The De Young's a great example. I mean, if you look around the city, there are buildings by some of the best international talent. And I think that that is so important to have this sort of richness from, like, other designers, the way that they approach things, sort of their interpretation of what it means to do a building in our urban environment, in our climate, in our region. And then you kind of compare that to what they do, you know, back in yeah. their home turf. And <laughs> and it's great because you get to sort of see kind of how they interpret us culturally. You, you get to see California and San Francisco held up through the lens of a great artist from, you know, across the ocean. So, you know, for instance, when I had a chance to work with the office of Fumiko Maki from Japan, we actually worked on the, for the Fox Center at Washington University in St. Louis. That was a wonderful project because you got to see how they actually responded to that region and particularly that campus because campus architecture is a very specific thing. And what I took away from watching them work was they were masters of reinterpreting like an environment. And what I'm talking about here is I'm talking about there were a number of classical buildings, limestone classical buildings that were part of the center that they were doing. And you know, one of the things that they could do is they could take modern materials and they could imitate the form of these classical buildings, or they could take the modern form and they could incorporate the materials of these classical buildings, which they did the latter. And it was very, very successful. And, I mean, this is a trick that I've kind of... A trick, huh? Yeah, well, um, you know, we're bag of tricks, people, <laughs> architects. So one of the projects we did was we did a very modern intervention. We built a private pool house for a client, and it was in the courtyard of a beautiful historic Mediterranean home that they had. I mean, it really, my, my hat's off to the original architects for this home. It's just exquisite. And this is almost intimidating because it was such a beautiful historic home. It's like, what am I going to do that's going to... But we took the material palette of that traditional home and classical home and we reinterpreted it into a modern form. And the dialogue between these two buildings is just heart-stoppingly beautiful. I uh, love it. The dialogue is <laughs> yeah, if the yeah. homes were alive. Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> and uh, again, this is one of these things where I was just really humbled to be, you know, able to work on such a thing. But yeah, that that was sort of a direct result of my collaboration with this great architecture firm that got imported from across, you know, the other side of the world brought to do architecture here and and I got exposed to them. So I you know, I think this is the way the world turns and this yeah. is the way that we all sort of learn and grow and great ideas sort of move around. Yeah. When do you think Edis, that you found your voice or your a level of certainty about what you may not know and what you do know? Uh, it just, for clients like uh, 20 years ago, you didn't have the best of me. I mean, but what is, is there a point where you kind of uh, arrive or you realize, hey, you know what? I'm in this for the rest of my life. I think learning you're in it for the rest of your life. And the wonderful thing about architecture is every challenge is totally new. Like every client you have is different. Every site you get is totally different. Every response has to be different. Believe me, if I could like you know, dump it out of a can and say, here you are. Boy, that's that's a business model for me, but you know, it's it doesn't work that way. Like, you know, employees that come and work in our firm, they're like, well, where's your CAD detail library? And it's like, no, we don't really have a library because we don't really do the same thing job to job. Literally, we create everything from scratch for every single job we do because it's everything is just that unique. Wow. I love that. Modern intervention. Is that the... Uh... A word that you've uh, you've come up <laughs> no, with? No, no. Okay, but no, no. In, intervention is talk a little bit about that. That modern intervention, especially when you have homes that are now a century or half a century old, right, and right. they've got a lot of things you you said were uh, spec design. Right. And how do you go into there and breathe new life into it? Right. Well, the home that I was talking about in the previous project where we did the pool building, that was what is known as a Category A historical building. Like, it was definitely on the radar of all the preservationists. And if you look at the Secretary of the Standard or Interior Standards for Historic Preservation, there's a rule there that says you can't create a false sense of history, meaning that if we wanted to create 
like a copy building of the original so that you'd never know it wasn't built along with it. They wouldn't let you do it. Okay. And, and But in a way, I think it's a sensible requirement that all additions to historic structures be distinct and unique so they don't create that false sense of timeline and they aren't like historically a lie. I think that's a good thing. And as a more modern architect, it's great because it gives me license to do something pretty jazzy. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, the, the word intervention is is entirely appropriate because if if I said, oh, we did an addition, addition implies that you're taking what's there and you're extending it. And that's not really what you can do in that case. So thus the word intervention comes in uh, a little go. more accurate. So. Yeah. And sculptor, a sculptor, how, would you like some of, all of, a bit of your work to a sculptor? Oh, absolutely. Cause, how so? Well, because, you know, architecture is form. And it's all about how you shape light and what you perceive, like, you know, everything your eyes perceive is wavelengths of light, right? And so, you know, architecture has always been about how to shape light. And you don't see that anywhere more clearly than if you look at early architecture, let's say in some northern climates, like if you look at the early cathedrals in England mm -hmm. and in Germany, you'll see these really deep projecting cornices on the exteriors of the buildings that cast like really strong shadows and everything because they had crappy weather. They just, <laughs> yeah. like, there wasn't a lot of sun there. But if you look at Italian buildings of the same time, there, the fenestration on those buildings was a lot finer. It wasn't so exaggerated because the sunlight there was just so much stronger and it just sculpted things a lot clearly. And so, I mean, you look at this and you understand that these people, they understood how light behaved and they understood what you perceived. And, you know, these days we're kind of working to get back to the same understanding, you know, because architecture is so eclectic. And it is so free and, you know, the rules are so nebulous that – and there are so many other considerations that the whole light thing kind of you know, <laughs> falls away a little bit. But ultimately, that's what goes to so much of your perception is how you shape light on the exterior, on the interior. And, you know, when people walk into a space that we've done really well, there's this sense of like quiet yet exhilaration – and and it comes from, like, this story that's being told by the way that light is being shaped around them. Excellent. How light behaves, as if it does have behavior. I notice a lot of life into your thoughts, your work, your clients, your buildings. Are you designing almost from the inside out? Like, as from the person? Yeah, that's a very good point, which is, you know... People wonder when you're designing a, a piece of architecture, do you design it from the outside in or the inside out? And there's architecture as object. And architecture as object typically is designed from the outside in because it's a sculptural form and the form comes first. And then you look at what you got inside and you kind of, you know, make it work. <laughs> and then there's designing from the inside out where you start with architecture as an environment. And that environment is what ultimately sculpts the object on the exterior. And so I think the classical architecture got a bit of a bad rap for being, you know, putting the object first because okay. you see these very sort of pure geometric forms and it's like, yeah, do we all want to live in domes? And, all this <laughs> stuff? and then you look at like organic architecture and here you have this kind of rambling assembly of all these sort of interconnecting spaces that have this kind of flow and there's this experience and story through it. And everybody feels that, okay, that's so wonderful and, and beautiful and everything like that. But, you know, I feel that you can do a magnificent job with both. You can do architecture as object. You can design from the outside in. And if you have the right program and, and you do it well, that space can be tremendous. And then there's the corollary to that, that you design from the inside out. And you start with, you know, those spaces. You start with the expression from within. And you interpret everything from within, and then really you can't go wrong with what's outside. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM. And if you'd like to volunteer with the Peninsula Humane Society, you can spend some time each week playing with puppies and cuddling cats. You can volunteer at the Peninsula Humane Society in S. 
PCA by giving animals much needed TLC and you can help animals become more socialized and more likely to be adopted. You can also work with birds or other wildlife or to help with fundraising. To find out how, visit PeninsulaHumaneSociety.org. We're talking today with Geddes Ulinskis, principal of Geddes Ulinskis Architects in San Francisco, California. For more information, feel free to visit www.ularch.com. That's www.ularch.com. Geddes, committed people. A lot of the essence that you're talking about takes a, a level of commitment from the restraint to the action, to the activity. How would you describe like your clients being committed people? What is it about them that are, that are committed? Mm-hmm. A lot of my clients are, number one, very trained doers. Because obviously to build a, or commission a piece of private architecture these days in our economy and the reality of our economy, you have to have already you know followed through and done something to have you know put those resources together so luckily for me i'm dealing with people who are exhibit a high level of commitment and execution on sort of the goal that can be a blessing and a curse but in the most part it's been a blessing because when i have a client who is looking at doing a project and you know it's a significant project Usually, they're looking at doing something that is a statement of, you know, who they are and what they stand for. And, you know, this is a very, socially, it's a very risky thing because you're putting a lot of resources towards this statement and it's going to be there for a very long time. It's not like you can delete the post. So following through on that vision is really, really important And to me, establishing that vision early on and knowing this is the essence of what we're doing. This is right. This is who you are and what is important. This is a story we're telling. And staying to that is going to be the most successful project because there is a clarity and a conviction behind the design and what is ultimately executed that, again, is just it's undeniable and it's breathtaking. The really difficult, you know, scenario Mm -hmm. is when we're in the middle of a project and, you know, we've already committed to an idea and we're following through on it. And then the clients come back from vacation and we're like, oh, we saw this house. (laughs) And, oh, this is is an amazing thing. And no, no, it's, you know, you're diluting. This isn't that project. And there's this tendency and this is where the restraint comes along too because it's not just the architect. It's the client. The client has to have this restraint and commitment to following through on an idea because – You know, you've got to stick to what is beautiful about that idea and you can't dilute it by trying to bring in all these other things because, again, the message just – it gets muddy and it starts to become, you know, a disaster and it starts to try and tell too many different stories and it gets confused. It's kind of like that – big budget spectacular you know movie yeah. that everybody's kind of wondering okay why why did we do this <laughs> we're back to the movie there we go <laughs> yeah when do you know that that clarity and conviction is speaking to you if you know is there a, a, yeah, a resonance yeah i, in I know during rough framing you know, okay. when the studs go up and the sheathing is put on the floors and you're walking through and you just you feel the spaces and you just you get a sense for the proportions and you get a sense for how spaces sort of communicate to each other, and all of a sudden you, you just start to get goosebumps, and it's like, wow! I love that you get goosebumps. Yeah, so you get we, that on every project. Is it? Does it happen? Like, yeah, we do it right. <laughs> that's great because I don't hear that often. Oh my gosh! I mean, there are some times when you know you're walking through a job site and it's just all still rough framing, but you're like, oh, this job will never be more beautiful than it is right now. I mean, obviously it, it yeah, does get yeah. more beautiful, but really, <laughs> I mean, that intersection of potential and realization, there's nothing like it. How has architecture changed from when you first started to now in your experience, if you can? Uh... Well, for starters, Photoshop wasn't around. Okay, yeah. well, right. <laughs> okay so here's the thing. I'm going to date myself. When I got out of architecture <laughs> school, thing. We still drew by hand. Okay. You know, I joined a firm where we drew ink on mylar 
And that is, you would spend weeks on this piece of plastic where you would be putting ink on it and, and drawing this document. And, you know, you just dread it if somebody told you, oh, we're changing that. I mean, you know, and now, you know, everything is digital. It's all CAD. And there's a lot more cut and paste, which, you know, the digital world has, has allowed for. So, you know, as a business owner, of course, you can take advantage of that. And there's, it's helpful. It's also a trap because it's very easy for, you know, people working with you to be cutting and pasting things in and not really knowing for sure, okay, is that really all right? <laughs> yeah. So, so you have to be more careful. Then also, you know, building technology has changed so much. We can make just about everything these days, right? Like laminated veneer lumber. The things that they're doing with pieces of wood and resin are just unbelievable. Like they can make these incredible st structural pieces now that, that just you, that you couldn't make before. You look at quartzites, right? People are making stone. They're making marbles and granites and stuff like that out of quartzite that you can't believe it's not real stone. I mean, even the most trained people look at this stuff and they're like, oh my God, is that real marble? <laughs> and what's fascinating though is, again, it's, it's all this technology. It's all this chemistry. It's all this engineering. And all this effort is being put into making these products look natural. Like, mm -hmm. why is that? Why, mm -hmm. why do we have, like, this chemical process and we spend so much time worrying that it looks like real travertine? Or real, and, it, and it goes back to that thing about people not wanting to be surrounded by chemicals and engineering. They want to be surrounded by things that have meaning, things that are part of the natural environment that, you know, speak to them. Things that have meaning. That's another theme uh, I noticed. Do you try to have meaning in, like, every facet of your life? You try. You know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And does it, doing that trying help in your your practice as well? Well, yeah. If you're conscious about all the steps that you take, you know, consciousness and understanding your own intentions is such an important way to sort of connect to your prime inspiration. Because there's that flash that happens. And it's very easy to lose that. It's this fleeting thing. It's like that little spark that you just caught out of the corner of your eye. A lot of people who study inspiration and dreams and all that kind of stuff, they, they have all these theories about getting up at four in the morning and writing in a journal <laughs> yeah. and crap like that. But, but yeah, there is something <laughs> yeah, to that where it's, it's on the edge of your consciousness, right? It's that, that sort of that scurries on the edge of your mind. And somehow you need to stay connected to it and you need to catch that because that. That is that thing that everything else is screaming to drown out. All the day-to-day -day demands and, and responsibilities you have and you know, living in our world and all that stuff, that, that will drown out that spark. But you need to keep that spark like alive. And understanding your own intentions and being clear with that is what allows you to, to hold on to that. And it allows you to... to work with the people that you're collaborating with and, and help them hold on to it as well. Yeah, Geddes, what are your uh, prime inspirations and that keeps your spark alive? If You know, we're both not going to be here another 100 years. At least uh, I'm, I, I'm pretty certain I'm not. What would you, what impression, what lasting inspiration would you like to uh, remain uh, from your time on Earth? And it's a loaded question yeah. and I wasn't planning yeah. on it, but... you. You're doing terrific doing this. Oh, well, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much. So, you know, I, I've been extremely lucky to be practicing uh, architecture. It's a wonderful field that I've been able to put my energy into. And I've been tremendously lucky with, you know, the clients and the projects I've been trusted with. But, you know, in, in the end, I've been also probably luckiest with the people who directly collaborate with me in my office, the architects who work with me. And really, there will always be projects. And yes, they're all very special. And they're the reason we get up out of bed. But at the same time, those people in my office who work with me, who have devoted their energy and devoted their creativity and inspiration to sort of believe in 
you know, my vision and collaborate with me on, on this approach, you know, I, I think ultimately they're my legacy. I want everybody who's worked with me to be better for it and to look back. I'm going to look back and I'll feel most blessed by the people I've gotten to work with. And I think ultimately they'll probably feel the same. They'll, they'll feel like, yeah, we got to do a lot of great projects, but you know what? That was a fantastic environment, and those were great people. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, but most of the jobs that I've had, when, when I look back on my life, I don't remember what I did at that job, <laughs> but it's the, the people who, like, really inspired me. That, that was the most important thing. That's outstanding. Gannis, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on our show. It really has. And, and in uh, my strong opinion, you're one of the finest architects in the world. Oh, thank you. I mean, I mean it sincerely, and I know many, many, many architects. Okay. But you're one of the finest. Thank you. We're honored to have you here in, uh, in the Bay Area, that's for sure. Okay. Thank you very much. Hope you consider coming back sometime in the future. Okay. Excellent. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Geddes Ulinskis, principal of Geddes Ulinskis Architects. Jue's portfolio features buildings set in both verdant and urban landscapes. They develop uh, sleek contemporary envelopes to highlight outward views and water, land and sky and interior vistas showcasing art, furnishings and uh, objects. Focusing on innovative materials and details, they lead and collaborate with the premier contractors, construction managers and design consultants for more information. Feel free to visit www.ularch.com. That's www.ularch.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith. And the executive producer and host of Modern Architect is Tom Diero. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu.